Pray with me. Father God, as we dive in this morning into this time of study together, would you please speak to us? Uh, would you convict us of our small thinking? Would you woo us into deeper and closer relationship with you and give us greater understanding of who you are and how you work? For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How about a little quick review here of uh, just some of the families that we've already met in our study of the Pentateuch. We've been in the book of Genesis. Uh, so far, we've seen that Cain gets jealous of his brother Abel and kills him. Uh, Lamech, a descendant of Cain, introduces polygamy into the world. Uh, Noah gets drunk and curses his grandson Canaan. Uh, Lot, when his home is surrounded by residents of the city in which he lives, Sodom, uh, and these residents want to sexually violate some visitors that are staying with Lot. He offers instead that they have sex with his daughters. Uh, later on, his daughters get him drunk and become pregnant by him. And we are told that Lot is the most righteous man in Sodom. Uh, Abraham tells his wife to tell a lie about being his wife. And he lets her be taken into Pharaoh's harem. And he does all that to protect himself. Isaac plays favorites between his sons Jacob and Esau, and they become enemies for a period uh, exceeding 20 years. Jacob plays favorites between Joseph and his 10 brothers, and Joseph's brothers, as you know, want to kill him. Marriages are pretty interesting in Genesis also. Abraham has sex with his wife's servant, Hagar. Isaac and Rebekah fight over which of their boys is going to receive the patriarchal blessing. Uh, Jacob ends up with two wives jealous of each other, and because of that jealousy, they get involved in a fertility contest. So question, anybody here feeling better about your family? <laughs> you got to ask this question too. Why does the writer include all of this stuff? Uh, I mean, why is this material in the book of Genesis? Uh, these are horrible stories. Here's another horrible story. When you read through the book of Genesis, you get to Genesis chapter 34. This is the story of Jacob's daughter, Dinah. And Jacob has now come back from uh, Haran, and he is now living again in the promised land. And Dinah is raped by a man named Shechem, who is a Hivite. And Jacob is kind of passive about all of this. I mean, he seemingly does nothing. And so two of his sons, Levi and Simeon, decide to do something. And they coax the men of Shechem's city into getting circumcised, leading them to believe that once they are circumcised, that they will join together these tribes, uh, their tribe and the tribe there in the city of Shechem. And they tell Shechem that he can then marry Dinah. Well, Shechem goes ahead and the men of the city there in Shechem go ahead and they are circumcised. And when they are in kind of a bad way because of that, Levi and Simeon, and I presume others, come in and murder all of the men and plunder the city. The behavior of all the men in this story is an absolute disgrace. But the writer of Genesis never says, you know, here's the bad guy, here's the good guy, here's the moral of the story. And so people wonder when they read this, what in the world is going on? Now, to start with, we need to understand that the author of Genesis is not morally confused. Uh, remember, the Pentateuch is the source of the Ten Commandments, the book of Exodus. It is most uh, the most morally influential writing in the history of the world. 
And the writer of Genesis, as you know, had no difficulty saying things like later on in Exodus, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, He says those things, but he also tells stories because stories force us to think. When you read stories, you have to develop discernment. You've got to apply some wisdom to the situation in the text. These stories are often kind of like moral case studies, really. They're quite complex. Uh, These are real people with all of their moral ambiguity interacting with other people and interacting with God. And the story of Dinah that I just mentioned demands that the reader ask questions. Uh, When something terrible happens, how do I distinguish between justice, which of course is good, and vengeance, which of course is not? And mostly, and this is the big point, mostly the writer tells these stories because the real hero in the story is God. The story is really teaching us something important about God. And God is working with these flesh and blood, sinful people living in a terribly fallen, broken world. And sin does do awful, awful damage, especially when you can step back from it and observe it in somebody else's life. Sometimes we don't see the damage it's doing in our own. Now, the tendency of the human race is to try to hide our sin to try to pretend it's not that big a deal. It's not so bad to think that depravity, our depravity is manageable. And let me tell you, that is not true. That is a lie of the devil. And that will kill you. And so the writer tells us these things to let us know that if God can be with them, these people in our stories, well, then God can be with us. If God can work in and through them and their various messes, well, then God can work in and through us. Amen? Amen. And that is the major theme of much of the Old Testament, and especially of what we're going to look at together this morning. Starting in Genesis 24, we see how God worked with Isaac and Jacob Genesis 24, 1, this has to do with the arrangements for the marriage and the guidance of Isaac. And this is what we read. It says, Abraham was now old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. And he said to the chief servant in his household, which we know from Genesis 15, 2 is almost certainly uh, Eliezer. Uh, he, He said to the servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Now, this hand under the thigh thing is just a method of promise in the old days. It was an expression of trust. Obviously, if you let a person put their hand under your thigh, you must trust them or are indicating that so. But we're not going to bring that back. Uh, Glad that's gone, that whole thing. Uh, But the concern here is that Isaac is not going to be tempted to idolatry. That's the underlying concern. He's not going to be tempted into leaving this God of the covenant by by 
the influence of pagan Canaanite wives. That's the underlying concern here. And let me just say, uh, that theme, the danger of marrying someone who is not part of the people of God, not committed to following God, that runs all the way through the Old Testament and right on through the New. The Apostle Paul talks about the danger of being unequally yoked in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You see, a follower of Jesus marrying someone who does not follow Jesus presents serious difficulties. Uh, in fact, just in my observation over the decades, I am yet to see a situation where somebody who follows Jesus and they choose to marry someone who doesn't, I'm yet to see that situation work out really, really well. In fact, usually what happens is the follower of Jesus starts to compromise all kinds of things because of this marriage that they're in with someone who does not follow. And my point is just this is not a new teaching. It's an Old Testament right into the New Testament teaching. And so Abraham sends his chief servant, Eliezer, off with a loaded caravan of ten camels, which would be an indication of the great wealth that Abraham had. And Eliezer has to find Abraham's relatives. He knows, of course, they're from the city of Haran. But he has to find them there, and he has to talk them into giving their daughter to marry a kid they've never met, probably not an altogether easy task. So what does Eliezer do? We read in Genesis 24, 12, and he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Very first thing he does is pray. This is actually the second recorded prayer we have in the Bible. The first one was when Abraham intercedes on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Eliezer is not even a Hebrew. We're told elsewhere that he's actually from Damascus. Uh, he's not part of Abraham's family lineage, but he has come to believe in and to follow the same God that Abraham follows. In fact, Eliezer's name means God is my help, and God is his help right here in this story. I love this detail in verse 15. It says, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. So, so Eleazar is still praying and God is like, bam, there she is. <laughs> and she exceeds all of his expectations. She's a relative of Abraham's. She's very beautiful. And she is definitely a woman of character. Now, in response to his prayer in verse 19, she says to Eleazar, and this is the sign that he was looking for, he says, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Now, you may have heard this before, but this is quite a kicker to this story. Do you know a thirsty camel can drink? And I looked this up uh, and I double checked it. Somewhere between 30 and 53 gallons of water in a 15 minute period. That's a lot of water. That is a lot. My hot tub holds 500 gallons. So, so this is between 300 and 530 gallons of water she got for the camels. The point is, this girl is doing some serious lifting, some serious work here, and she has no idea what is at stake. She is just serving a stranger at this point. She has no idea her whole future is on the line. Her participation in God's redemptive community is about to begin just because she offers some water to a stranger and a hot tub full of water to some camels. 
And this is actually how life is. I would submit to you, you never know what an act of kindness, a willingness to share your faith, a willingness to be sacrificial, to be serving a servant, to be forgiving. You never know what God is going to do with those kinds of things. Rachel didn't know here. But the point too is God is at work, even in little things like helping a stranger and watering his camels at the well. Eliezer recognizes that God is at work in this moment. We're told that when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And so now it's off to meet the family. And uh, her brother is Laban. And we're going to meet this guy in a little bit. Uh, He's an interesting guy. Laban is a money guy. Uh, He's very interested in money. He's very interested in stuff. And this jewelry that Eleazar gives Rachel absolutely gets, you know, Laban's attention. Uh, And her family approves. And Eleazar realizes that he has accomplished the mission. and, And his prayer is answered. And the man, it says, bowed his head and worshiped. The Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. And he sees the providence and the working of God in his immediate circumstances. And so he has been given this very difficult assignment or challenging assignment, which he begins with prayer, and then he sees God at work, and he ends this assignment with worship. And the point is, this is a God deal the whole way through. God is the main character. God is the one at work. And it's important for us to understand what's getting worked out in a story like this. It's one of the questions that has perplexed human beings throughout all of human history. And it's getting worked out right here in front of us in this story. There are two terms that theologians use when they describe God. One is transcendence. You've heard this term before. The idea there is that God is eternally self-sufficient. He is apart from creation. He does not depend on creation. He is wholly independent of the material universe beyond the measure of all physical laws. He was around way before the world was ever created. And he can live apart from creation quite satisfactorily. He doesn't need any part of the creation. But understand, if people believe that God is only transcendent, well, then very often they end up being something like a deist. You may have heard that term before. They believe God created the world. He steps back after he's created it. It's like he wound it up and he lets it run. The world is just running on its own. God is transcendent, not very concerned about the details down here. Now, the other word that theologians use to describe God is eminence. The idea of eminence is that God is continuously, actively present with us. It's similar to the idea of omnipresence, only with one important difference. Omnipresence is kind of a spatial concept. God is everywhere. Eminence, on the other hand, is more the idea that God is everywhere active. God sees, and God cares, and God knows, and God works. Some... um, religions that emphasize just the imminent aspect of God 
uh, might be something like pantheism, a pagan expression of this. Uh, God is everywhere and God is in everything. And what often happens in a, in a view of the world that's pantheistic is you start worshiping the trees and the grass and the pastures and the mountains and the sun and the moon. These things become your God. But understand, the writer of Genesis is saying, and again, this is unprecedented, right? This has never been said before to the human race. This is new revelation. Namely, the writer says that God is both transcendent and imminent. He's always existed, even before time. He created the heavens and the earth. He's infinitely above the creation, separate from it. But at the same time, he is imminent. He's here right now. And, and he is concerned about nomads and their servants finding spouses for their kids. That's the subtext of this story. He is the transcendent God who is Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's the God with you, with me right now. He's with your family, your finances, your friends, your fricasses, all the messy stuff in your life. Just the way he was with Eliezer. Just the way he was watching out for Isaac, he's watching out for you and he's watching out for me. And God gives this great promise to Isaac. This is Genesis 26 2. The Lord appears to Isaac when there's a famine in the land and God says, do not go down to Egypt, you know, like your dad had. Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. And that's the great promise made to Isaac and God is with him his whole life long. Now, Isaac, of course, has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is a a bit of a schemer. Uh, He's always working the angles to get something that He wants, and he's like that actually right out of the womb. Genesis 25, it says, When the time came for Rebekah to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau, meaning red. And after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Now, the name Jacob, the root of his name is so interesting. It it means things like follower or replacer. Like I'm following you to get you, to replace you kind of an idea. One who follows at the heel, it can mean. Metaphorically, what it meant was deceiver. This person's following and going to deceive and going to replace you. That, that was the idea. And as it turned out, that happened to be Jacob's character. We're told that when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tent. So Jacob is an inside guy. Uh, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And in that statement right there, there is a world of hurt, a world of hurt. Isaac dotes on Esau. Esau is a man's man, but he's not the brightest bulb in the room. And he has a serious body hair problem. Um, (laughs) Rebecca favors Jacob. 
And so you have this major, major messed up family thing going on. And in the mix of all this family dysfunction, Rebecca actually helps Jacob trick or deceive her father into getting the patriarchal blessing. Very messed up. She helps him be Jacob the deceiver. And so God decides that Jacob needs some discipling. Uh, He needs to develop character. And the best place to develop character is always in the midst of difficulty of some kind or disappointment. So life is going to get challenging for Jacob. That's what's going to happen. He's going to have to travel a long, long distance from home and do life with some very, very difficult relatives and do that for a long time, 20 years. But in the midst of all this, God wants Jacob to know that he will be with him. In Genesis 28, Jacob has now left home. He is fleeing from his angry brother Esau because he has received the patriarchal blessing from his father. Esau is mad. Esau wants to get him, wants to kill Jacob. And so Jacob is running away from home. And in chapter 28, uh, Jacob has a vision. And this vision tells him that, again, God is going to be present with him. Uh, There's a kind of a a ladder is what he sees in his vision. And the angels of God are ascending and descending from heaven to earth on this ladder. It's the intersection of the kingdom of heaven with earth, of course, and the intersection with lives, the lives of human beings. So God is, again, present. God is, again, active. God is doing things on earth through his emissaries and through his angels, the ones that are sent to serve him. And God says, and this is a very important message, God says, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and he poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. So Jacob worships. And part of what he does here, what he's doing, because this is always what worship is, it's remembering. That's what the pillar is all about. Setting up a pillar, pouring oil on it is a way to not forget. There's something there to mark what happened. And he gives this, he gives the place the name Bethel or Bethel, house, God. It means house of God. This is the place where God is present. This is the place where God met Jacob. (laughs) So often I think we're like Jacob. Uh, We we say, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it, (laughs) right? This is the beginning of Jacob's long transformation and becoming more aware that God is always with him, you see. In chapter 29, he goes to Haran, his grandfather, Abraham's old town. That's where he's at. This is hundreds of miles away from uh, where his brother Esau is. And there, of course, he finds his uncle Laban. And in Uncle Laban, Jacob meets his match. Laban is like a master deceiver. 
Jacob arrives in Haran and meets some folks at a well, and we're told one of the people he meets is Rachel, and she is a shepherdess for her father. Jacob meets her and helps her there at the well to water her sheep, and he is so happy to see Rachel and to meet family, he, he starts weeping. This is what we read, Genesis 29, 12. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. And then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for the younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. And so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Let's say it all together, just, oh. We got a love story here. We got a love story. Jacob is absolutely smitten by Rachel. He's happy to work for seven years. I, I read one commentary that said, this is about twice the amount of money that would normally be given in payment to the bride's family. So, you know, he's being over the top gracious here and offering to work for Rachel for seven years. And I don't know if in the back of his mind, he's thinking, I got Esau at home. What's seven years? You know, this might be a good thing. Or I, I mean, I don't know, but he's, he's paying a very high price for Rachel. Now, sadly, the love story becomes a love triangle. Jacob served Laban for seven years. That was the contract. That was the deal. But Laban pulls a fast one. He ensures that Jacob will be working for him yet another seven years. That's another part of what he's doing. And he gets his older daughter, Leah, married off at the same time. And so the wedding night arrives. And so into Jacob's tent goes Leah, perhaps wrapped in a veil, silent in the darkness, maybe wearing a dress that belonged to Rachel. We don't know this. Maybe some perfume that Rachel wore, I don't know, so that she would smell like Rachel. I mean, does any of this sound familiar? If you know the story about, you know, Jacob getting Esau's blessing. Well, then verse 25 says that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Oops. Uh, and of course, Jacob is not happy about this. And so Jacob goes to his father-in-law Laban. And he says, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And that's so interesting because that word, uh, the word there is actually a root form of Jacob's own name. And the author wants us to pick up on this, right? This is a theme getting repeated here. It's a theme of Jacob's life. Later on in Genesis 31, 7, Jacob says, Laban cheated me or deceived me by changing my wages 10 times. He doesn't like being deceived. He doesn't like being cheated. It's so, so interesting. In Genesis 31, 20, it says that Jacob 
deceived Laban by not telling him he was running away. And I get the sense that in the relationship of these two, you got two great deceivers and they're always pulling out in all the stops, just trying to get one over on each other and get the better situation for themselves. The writer, what the writer is doing is letting us see that Jacob is now on the receiving end of what he's been dishing out his whole life long. Jacob has to learn what it feels like to be deceived. Uh, he needs a new pair of eyes, a, a new mind, a new heart. And for that to happen, God lets him be on the receiving end for a while. And suffering will have to teach him what nothing else seems to teach him. And so he goes to Uncle Laban and uh, he says, why have you deceived me? Again, a lot of irony in the words that follow uh, behind these words. Laban says this. Laban speaks back to him. He says, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Laban's getting a dig in here. He's saying around here, we don't allow the grabby younger child to steal the rights of the older. Ouch. That had to hit home. And here's just kind of an aside. You can't read this story and not wonder about Leah. I mean, think of what that wedding night must have been like for Leah. This is her one and only wedding night. And she's in the tent because her husband thinks that she is her sister. And while she's in that tent, she says nothing. All she had to do was say a word and the deception would have been over. But she says nothing, and you've got to wonder why. Why does she go through with this? And maybe she's afraid of her father's anger. That could have been a real and present danger. Maybe she feels unattractive and fears she'll never be loved or never get a husband. Or maybe she's desperately in love with Jacob. We actually don't know the answer to the why question. But we do know that this story is now no longer just a love story. It's pretty dysfunctional. It's pretty heartbreaking. It's hurtful and it becomes a hot mess. But we read that God hears and God cares and God notices the tears of Leah. The transcendent God is imminent. That's the subtext. And so for 14 years, Jacob goes to character school. Jacob the deceiver meets Laban and learns about the pain of deception. And he begins to change, at least some, uh, which is kind of what I could say about all of you and me, right, as disciples. We, we grow and we learn and we become more like Jesus, at least some. <laughs> and that's what we see happen here. God is with uh, Jacob in this time. Jacob and his growing family are prospering despite all of Laban's efforts. Jacob finally decides it's time to return home and face his brother Esau. And this is a courageous decision because he doesn't know, you know, what Esau has become. He doesn't know how much Esau is continuing to hate him. And so this is a courageous decision. And Jacob has kind of been a runner and avoider for much of his life. But now he decides to go back and be reconciled to his brother or I suppose, try, uh, die trying. And on the way, the night before he meets his brother Esau, uh, he's been traveling now for a while. He has this great encounter with God. And in the middle of nowhere, literally in the middle of nowhere, God meets him. 
And Jacob, the guy who had lived in deceit and in manipulation and in grasping and in fear, now finds himself wrestling all night long with a man that no matter what he does, he can't defeat. He just holds on to him. That's the best he can do is just not let go, just hold on to him. And he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, what happens is Jacob discovers or figures out, we're not really told clearly that he's actually wrestling with God, God himself. In Genesis 32, 28, God says, I'm going to give you now a new name. You were Jacob. You were the schemer. You were the grasper. You were the deceiver. Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Israel means he, he struggles with God. He wrestles with God. And so after this wrestling match and after getting a new name and a new identity, Israel or Jacob sends messengers to his brother Esau to announce that, that he's coming, that he's soon to arrive. And that doesn't go so well. <laughs> the messengers actually return back to Jacob with the news that Esau is coming to greet him. Uh, with 400 men. And that sounds like a battle is about to happen. This is not good. And so Israel devises a strategy to soften up his brother Esau. He divides his family so that maybe half of them will survive if the other half is attacked. And uh, he also sends packs of animals on ahead of them as gifts, as presents to Esau. We read that he sent 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He's hoping to appease his brother Esau. Genesis 33, 3 tells us that he himself went on before them. So this is a good thing. You see, he's now Israel. He's the one who struggles and wrestles and fights. And so he's going first. He's leading the way. He's taking a risk. Genesis 33, 4. This is beautiful. This is absolutely a beautiful end to this little part of the uh, episode in the life of, of Jacob. It says, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. So the long, slow, redemptive work of God bears fruit in these two estranged brothers, Jacob and Esau. How cool is that? Nobody saw that coming. Nobody expected that ending. You see, the community of God's people win a battle. And finally, in this sad book, because it's been kind of sad so far, some brothers get reconciled. Now, Jacob says to Esau, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. This is actually a, a Hebrew expression. I have seen your face. To see someone's face meant that you now know, you understand the intentions of their heart. You, you get their character. You're on the same page. Uh, think about somebody whose back is turned toward you. You know, you, you can't read their eyes. You can't see their expression. Uh, you don't know what their mood is. Uh, you, you don't really know what they're thinking in spite of what they might be saying. And then suddenly they, they turn around and they face you. And now you can, you can see their eyes. You can see their expression. You see their face and suddenly you know their heart. You know what's going on inside. That's what's going on here. Jacob is changing, you see, and he, he's gotten to know God better in his 
14 or exactly 20 years away. And, and this is changing the way he sees and the, even the way he interacts with people. Jacob the deceiver, Jacob the schemer, Jacob the, the grasper is now Israel. Not perfect, not by any stretch, um, but changing. Because God is with him everywhere he goes. God keeps pursuing him. God keeps interacting with him. You see, in Genesis, where is Bethel? Where is the house of the Lord or the house of God? Where is God present? Well, what we're seeing so far is he is present everywhere. God is present in the garden, in the cool of the evening, in the cool of the day, even after Adam and Eve have sinned and run and hidden. God is present with Noah when the earth is covered with the waters of judgment. God is with a rejected little boy named Ishmael who's about to die in a desert. God is with Melchizedek in a city called Salem, and who would have thought God was there? God is with a non-Hebrew servant named Eliezer on an impossible mission to find a bride. God is with an unloved wife named Leah. And God is with a lonely, undeserving schemer in a foreign country who is being taken advantage of by his father-in-law. And the thing about this book is you never know where God is going to show up next. And you rarely know exactly what this God is going to do before he does it. And I say this too, because I think many times, many of us live practically speaking, as if we're deists. You know, we, we believe, of course, there is a God, that God exists. But a lot of the time we think and we act and we feel like we're just on our own here. Life is just up to me to figure out and to process and to make work. We act as if we have to watch out for ourselves. We have to provide for ourselves. We have to scheme to solve our own problems. It's all really, really just up to me. And friends, don't you see that that is not true? That's a lie of the devil. Everything we've studied so far in the book of Genesis challenges that kind of thinking. Just the way the table does that we're going to participate in. You see, our God is a God who is with us. He is a God who is transcendent. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He's not unsatisfied without us, but nevertheless, he is a God who is imminent, a God who is with us, a God who loved us enough to send his son to this earth to live and to die and to come back from the dead for us. It's not a coincidence that Jesus happened to say one time, I will never leave you or forsake you what he said to Jacob. It's what he said to Isaac. It's what he said to Abraham. It's what he says to you. It's what he says to me. This table is a celebration of 
of the very event, the acts that made this, this communion, this community possible, this group of people that God will always be with is only possible because of what is signified in this sacrament. Jesus in the upper room took the bread and he broke it and he said, this bread is my body broken for you. It's so interesting too. You know, we ingest this. We take it into us. It becomes part of us, this meal, this sacrament, which it's meant to teach us. Yes, God is transcendent, but he is also with us. And the death of Jesus Christ and his body broken on the cross, our sins are paid. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. Because of his shed blood, our blood does not need to be shed. And we come to this meal in faith and trust, believing in the promise, the promises of God. I invite you to partake of this meal with us, but to partake appropriately, you must partake in faith. To partake appropriately, you've got to know you're a sinner. You've got to confess your sin and repent of your sin and and then come in faith and eat and, and drink in the grace that's given to you in Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this meal that your son Jesus made possible and hosted. Holy Spirit, we thank you that real grace is dispensed through this sacrament we call the Lord's Supper. Because of your work in us and through us and in this sacrament, we are given grace and is sealed to us, Father. We are renewed, we are strengthened, and we pray that you would do all of those things in us now as we set apart this bread and this juice for its special purpose of representing Jesus to us. Thank you for this meal, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.